We'll be reading from Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, uh, found in the Bibles in front of you on page 662. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at the time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series here on the names of God. I have this sense, I don't know if it's just me, I have a sense that we're kind of tired, feeling a little tired, a little sluggish a little bit, maybe. So I'm going to do something I almost never do. Introverts in the room, be prepared. Stand up, talk to one another, greet about four or five people and just say, Jesus loves you, and then we'll get going to the sermon, okay? All right, here we go, all right. Jesus loves you, four or five people. All right. Go ahead, find your seats. All right. That's enough, that's enough, that's enough. All right. All right. Introverts, did you survive? Did you survive that? All right. Good. All right. Excellent. All right. All right. Well, it's good to be together here today, and we're going to continue on in this series here. Uh, uh, this text that was read to us is, uh, is, is a fascinating text, and let me just give you some background as we jump into this, right? Okay, because we're, we're jumping into a book of Jeremiah, and probably it's not a book that uh, you probably haven't read it in a while. I mean, maybe some of you have, but it's not one of those books of the Bible where a lot of people are always reading, you know, type. Uh, it's, it's kind of, a, in some ways, a, a depressing book in some ways, um, but it's an important book in the narrative, the grand narrative of the Bible here. Let me explain kind of what was happening here. Uh, Jeremiah, we see in chapter 1, uh, Jeremiah, he is tasked with uh, proclaiming or pronouncing God's judgment upon God's people here. He's, he's told that he's going to be uh, telling them what uh, God is going to do and how God is not happy with them. So you can imagine that this is not like the, the best assignment in the world. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put words in your mouth. See that I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And then he goes on to say that he's, he's calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord. That they shall come. And he's, he's saying that, that I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. So, so this is what this book is about. Jeremiah is tasked with sharing that God is going to judge uh, his covenantal people for their disobedience here. And, and the bad thing is, is that the covenantal people don't listen. In chapter 3, we see in verse 10 where it says that, it says, yet for all of this her treachery, uh, and for all of this her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. He, and then there's almost like this plea in verse 15, uh, 13 of this chapter, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. 
Um, return, O faithless children. And so they, they don't listen. Uh, we see this again in, in, chapter, in chapter 5. It says they have refused to repent. So this is what's happening in the book. Jeremiah is told to go tell them that God's judgment is happening. They're not re- listening. They're not um, uh, re- repenting and responding. So then in chapter 11, we get a really sad, sad commentary there. It says in verse 6, the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their heart, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I command to do, but they did not. He goes on and says, they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. And here we have this very sad commentary that the covenant, that God's covenant they had made, the old covenant was broken, absolutely broken here. But in the midst of this, Jeremiah a couple times and then in the text, what we have before us today, Jeremiah gives good news of a new covenant. And this is actually a couple of chapters before the text we have today. In chapter 31, he talks about this new covenant that's going to come. And I've talked about that before in the past, but I'll say this. In chapter 31 of 29, it says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die according to his own sin. Well, what is that talking about? Well, basically he's saying that in the old covenant, the people were, they entered that covenant by birth. Okay, and so what the fathers they did, it, it, it directly affected the children. But here in the new covenant, he's going to say, but we're, instead of entering the new covenant by, by birth, we enter by faith. And so everyone then is accountable to God. Uh, they were in the old covenant, but uh, it, it is, it's just different here. And he says, I will make a new covenant. And um, uh, we're not going to have a mix of some believers and some unbelievers in this. So we have this new covenant here. And after he... He, he teaches us, he says, to, in order to establish this new covenant, this brings us to our text today in chapter 33, he says that God has to reach back to the Davidic covenant's promise of a righteous branch. And that was the text that was just read to us, that there will be a righteous branch that will come up. And this is the promise of our text today. So here's what I want to do. As we look at the name of God, we have on the screen here, screen here Jehovah Sidkenu, as the Lord is our righteousness. So in order to unpack this, and this is where we get it from the text here, in the name, this is verse 16 of chapter 33, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. So in order to unpack this this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to raise three questions today and hopefully answer them in a way that's helpful. Um, what is righteousness? How do we get righteousness? And why does it matter? So what is it? How do we get it? And why does it matter? That's what's going to frame our discussion this morning, okay? Let me pause, ask God's blessing, and uh, then we'll, we'll jump right in, okay? Father, Lord, you know, whenever uh, we talk about your word, um, we want to pause and ask for your guidance because um, this is, this, as I said, this is your holy word. And we're so grateful for it. And I want to communicate it in a way that is uh, accurate to the text here before us, in a way that is helpful and relevant. And in order for that to happen, I, I definitely need your spirit's enablement and guidance. 
Lord, in order for us to pay attention, in order for us to rightly discern, which everyone's responsible to do is rightly discern the Word of God, we need your Spirit's enablement. So I pray for all of us here today. I pray that this would be a, a, a profitable time, whether that means that we're encouraged or whether that means we're rebuked or whether that means we're convicted or we're uplifted or whatever you have for us from studying this text and this topic today, I pray that your spirit would have full reign here, that you'd remove distractions and that we would worship you. And we're so thankful that the Lord is our righteousness. Of course, in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. We sang um, uh, before the throne of God above, and there was actually a, 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 a verse in there that isn't typically sung. And I, I, can't, I was trying to look it up real quick, uh, and I didn't see it, but it has a, the, the phrase of something like, you know, trying to, um, trying to understand this is, is just overwhelming, but I'll... I'll I like being in the flood. I don't know if you remember that lyric of it. It's like, it's like just pouring down. And I feel that this tension today with this topic is, you know, Christ as our righteousness, okay? The Lord is our righteousness. There is so much here that I feel like I, I, I can't, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, number one, but I, I feel like I'm just not able to communicate the beauty of it. And so we're going to really lean, as we always do, on the Spirit of God here because this is absolutely crucial for us to understand as a church, okay? But first of all, as we're going to walk through this here, what is righteousness, okay? So if we're going to look at this, you know, we're going to talk about this, let's have uh, a, an idea of what it is. So think about it. You know, if, if I were to ask you to define righteousness, how would you define it? Uh, what, what do you, when, when I say the word righteousness, what comes to your mind? How would you explain it to someone? Um, as, I, as I did a lot of reading on this, and, and there's, the word righteousness or righteous comes up a lot in the Bible. It is, it is a, all over the scriptures, and for good reason. So how would you describe righteousness? Well, here's my working definition of it that we'll work off of uh, today. Here is this, is that righteousness is God's eternal standard of what is right, Righteousness is God's eternal standard for what is right. Now, there's a lot there, and we're not going to take a lot of time to unpack that, but just, just a, a comment or two will suffice here. First of all, we see God. So who's the, the determiner of this? Who owns this? It's God. Uh, I don't determine righteous or what is right. God does. It's eternal, which means it doesn't change. It always has been. Okay, so that gives kind of a hint a little bit about this that we're going to talk about in a minute about the fact that it's eternal. And it's a standard. It's something that we're uh, held accountable to or it's something that is the goal here. So, so we have that uh, of what is right. So God's eternal standard of what is right. This is what righteousness is according to the scriptures. Now it's applied in different ways in different texts here, but this really helps us understand Okay, what are we talking about here? So when it says the Lord is our righteousness, what does that mean? Well, it means that this idea of what is right in this eternal standard of what is right, that is something that we're held accountable to, and we need tremendous help with that. But there's another question I want to raise quickly here. Is, is this is like, how does God express or reveal his righteousness? So how do we know what is righteous? So if God has an eternal standard of what is right, how does he reveal that to us? Okay. How, how does he do it? Think about that. How do we know 
what God's eternal standard of right, of what is right. How do we know that? Okay, any thoughts on that? Word, okay, that, that's, that's the first one I have here, okay, God's word, right, okay, so we have God's word in Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, okay, his commands, what he says, his words, they're right, rejoice in the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, so how do we know what is right, how do we know what is righteous, well, it's because he's revealed it in his word to us, how else though, there's, there's more than that, it's not just his word, but I submit to you that it's also his actions, it's what he does, okay? In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And just so you know, righteousness and justice, those are very closely tied, very closely tied together. Now, there are some nuanced differences. They're not the same, but they're very closely tied together here. And so by what God does, he tells us and he shows us what is righteous. What, whatever God does is good. And so we, we just look at his actions and we see how he operates. And we say, okay, that's right and that's good. That's righteousness. So we have his word, what he tells us, his actions, but then also his essence on who he is, his character. I mean, he defines righteousness because he is righteousness. It's kind of like he defines love because he is love. It's not like that, that God was, was coming up with things outside of himself. Rather, no, he's showing us who he is, and then that then becomes the standard for all of his creation. So this, his, 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 his character, Deuteronomy chapter 34, um, in verse 4, it says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without, iniqui uh, without iniquity, just and upright is he. Okay? This is saying that he, this is who he is. Leviticus 21, you shall sanctify him for he offers the bread of your God. He's talking about Le the Levitical uh, order here. He shall, the priest shall be holy to you for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. So we have these three ways, the primary ways that God reveals this standard of what is right, this eternal standard of what is right. And the way I put them in this order, they're actually kind of in reverse order. It, it, it starts with his character, then it goes out through what he does, and then he reveals it in his word to us. So if we're going to have a, this understanding of, okay, Jesus, okay, the Jehovah Sidkenu, the, the Lord is our righteousness. We have to first understand what does that mean. This means that there's an eternal standard of what is right. Now how do we get it? So now we know that this is what it is. The question then comes, okay, how do we get it? Well, this is a kind of a bad news, good news situation here, Okay. Have you ever had that? Someone comes to you, well, I got good news and I got bad news. Okay. Now, how many of you are give me the bad news first type person? Okay. How many of you are give me the good news first? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wayne, you're a good news guy. I, I, that surprised me. I would be like, uh, uh, not because you're pessimistic or anything, but just, just uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I would thought you'd be like, no, give me the bad news first, you know, because that's how I am. All right. Just give me the bad news because then it just goes up from there, right? Okay. All right. I mean, then, then, then we can only move up. Okay. So, so the bad news is this, is that no one is naturally righteous. There's the bad news. Okay, no one is naturally righteous. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. 
Remember the righteousness of God that is his eternal standard of what is right. And here's the standard. Be holy. Leviticus chapter 11 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Be holy. And you think, okay, well that was the Old Testament thing. Jesus says this as well in the Sermon on the Mount. And then later on, then um, uh, uh, Peter is going to appropriate the same verse in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's going to appropriate the same verse to the church. And he says that, so just because God is holy, we are to be holy. This is the standard by which you're accountable, held accountable to. Every person here, okay, myself included, we are all held to the standard, this righteousness, which is holiness, okay? This eternal standard of what is right is not something we determine. It's not something to say, well, in, in, in my estimation, this is the right thing to do. Wrong answer. It's God's standard of what is right. And he says, be holy. Now the bad news here is that no one's righteous. Because we're all sinners. Everyone here is a sinner. And you say, okay, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. Okay, but do you? <laughs> do you? You say, yes, yes, I know I've done things wrong. I, I, okay, okay. But do you understand what that means? Do you understand that this, this separates us from God? Do you understand that we truly deserve eternal separation from God? Do you understand that? You say, yes, I understand that. Okay, yeah, I, I, I get that. But do you? <laughs> you know, because I ask myself the same question. Sometimes I imagine if, if I were to, like, you know, go and, and see Jesus and he would just say, you're a terrible sinner. You deserve eternal punishment. What would I say? I, I, you know, or what would I feel in that moment? I mean, I know the theological answer to that question. And I know what Jesus would say to that. And, I, and I'm so comforted by that. But I think in my own heart, I would just start trying to justify myself. But I'm not as bad as... I mean... It's like kind of like, yeah, you know, I know, I know, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. You know, ah, this is really terrible. Hey, can you tell me a little bit more about that Judas guy that was one of your, I, you know, can we talk about him for a second, you know? I mean, we would want to compare ourselves to someone worse than us. Because we want to be a little bit better. See, sin, when we understand, when we have fallen short of the glory of God, it's not, it's not like the princess bride where it's like, well, he's mostly dead. He says we're mostly dead. Yeah, no, either you're dead or you're not. Either I'm separated from God or I'm not. It's, it's like there's no grade here of, well, you know, he's, his sin has separated from God, but it's a lot better than this other separation from God. Do we truly understand that there is none righteous, no, not one. This is what Jeremiah is getting at here. He's trying to get them to understand. He's saying, please repent. Please turn back. You have broken the covenant. You, you, and God, this is, this is shattered here. Please return. It's done. And then the only hope that is right here is that there has to be something radically different and changing here. The, Jehovah said, canoe, the Lord is our righteousness. This is the good news, Right? So there's the bad news. No one is naturally righteous. But the good news is that there's a righteous branch. 
And we see this in those days. This is verse 15 of chapter 33 of Jeremiah. In those days, by the way, this is also in chapter 23. He's given this good news in a couple places here. But in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So the good news is that there's a righteous branch. There's a good new, the good news is that there is one person who has lived the life that you and I could never live. There's the good news here. The good news is that, that there is a, 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 a someone who faithfully upheld the righteous standard of God, who, who lived this life as a human, right? As a human and never violated God's law. And, and in fact, that, remember, what's the definition of righteousness? It's God's eternal standard for what is right. And so, so this righteous branch that Jeremiah says is going to spring up in the future from when he's writing this. He says this is going to spring up and he's going to execute righteousness. He's going to live justly. He's going to live out righteousness. He's going to perfectly keep the standard of all what is right and wrong. And so this command to be holy for I am holy. God says my nature is that I'm holy. You must be holy then. You must live this standard out here, the standard that I have committed because of my righteousness. Because if you don't, he says, well, then I'm not holy. And, if I, and then my justice is going to be called into question and my holy this is going to be called into question. He says, so you've got to live this way, but we can't, and we didn't, and we failed. We are just like these people here in Jeremiah where we've broken the covenant, but our hope is that there's a righteous branch. He, when he was born, he lived with siblings and didn't sin. Jesus' first miracle Okay, <laughs> right? How does he do that? How does, how, does he, how does he live with his parents who are sinners, okay, and yet that he, he submits to them. He loves them perfectly. How do, imagine that household. Imagine that. No wonder why his brothers didn't like him. I'm serious. My older brother always did everything right. And he never got in trouble. I hated that. I wanted him to get in trouble, right? You know, there's this, there's this sense of, of, why did he do this? How could he do this? It's, it's weird when people always obey. That's odd. Because we're so used to sin. Jesus just never did. This righteous branch of Jesus Christ, who we know now know is Jesus Christ, he never lied. He never lusted. He never was deceitful. He never was dishonest. He was never uh, uh, unrighteously angry. I mean, have you ever known that it was right for you to be upset about something, but by when the dust settled, you knew you didn't display righteous anger? I mean, it was right to be upset about it, but you kind of muffed it all up in the process. Well, I've been there. I mean, as a parent, there's times I'm trying to teach my kids something or say, you need to do something. And you can feel the patience just being chopped down with every word that you're saying. And you're just like, and then pretty soon, you speak too harshly. And then you got to go back and say, I'm sorry. Jesus never had to do that. Jesus never had to say, I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? Because he's the righteous branch. 
It's a beautiful concept when you think about it. And, and, and I fear that, particularly for those of us who have grown up in church, these are concepts that we just know and we believe and we don't doubt, but we're no longer moved by. Can we change that? Can we just ask God to move us by this fact that we have a righteous branch? Because then that's the good news, but then there's more good news is that this righteous branch becomes our righteousness. This is Jehovah's canoe. The Lord is our righteousness. Man, I can't begin to, to um, communicate how important this is. I cannot, I can't even get my mind around this. I've been studying all week, you know, getting ready for this particular uh, sermon and, you know, years past, of course, and you study this concept about Jesus and this concept about, you know, penal substitution or uh, whatever you want to call it, imputation or whatever you want to call it, whatever theological terms you use for it. You have this, this idea of like, wait a minute here. All of Jesus' righteousness gets put on my account. I mean, in some ways, we're kind of like, yep, that's a good deal. I'm taking it. And, you know, drive it like you stole it, you know. <laughs> um, but we got we to be moved by this. We, we got to be amazed by this because it's going to impact us here. So, so there, there's several texts here. Romans chapter 5, 4 if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What I love about this text of Romans 5, and you'll hear me quote Romans 5 a lot in my preaching, okay? Romans 5 is, a, is just a foundational and pivotal text in my growth. Um, it's just an incredible chapter where we see, okay, wait a minute, it just kind of made sense. Because I, I remember as a kid, I used to think, God, you are, you, and I would never say this because I was a good church kid, but I would never say, but I thought, you know, you know God, it's kind of unfair. Adam sinned, but then I get his blame. That doesn't seem right. I mean, he's, I wasn't in the garden. I, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't eat the fruit. I didn't do any of that. And so why is it that I inherited this in nature? Why is it that it got imposed upon me? Because I'm telling you, if in, in you know, my 11-year-old mind, if I was in the garden, I never would have eaten that fruit. Right? I mean, I just wonder. Well, I guarantee it. I probably would have done it a lot faster now that I have lived a little bit. I used to think it was unfair, but Romans 5, particularly this verse here, helps me understand. Wait a minute here. If, if by one man's disobedience and sin got entered into the world and it tainted all of humanity, it was one man, Jesus' perfect righteousness, that now can be put on everyone's account through faith in him. <laughs> That's, that should just take our breath away. I was trying to come up with an illustration of, of, of what this would be like. And, 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 and every one that I came by, it would just kept falling short. And, and no, no, no reason why, right? I mean, this is, we're talking about the eternal God here. We're talking about what he's done for us in eternal life. And, and I'm trying to come, you know, compare it to like a basketball game or something like that. But here's the thing, though, is that just imagine where if you had, where you, I, Maybe, maybe it was like you, you were going to lose your house. Maybe you were in such a financial disaster that 
you're going to lose your house. And you had already sold everything. I mean, you didn't have a car anymore. And so you were trying because you needed a place to stay, a place to sleep. And you had nothing left. And then you knew that the the, the collectors are going to come. And because they they told you they're going to show up and they're going to seize the house. And you're sitting there in this empty house. is the last thing you have. And then in that last moment, someone comes and just pays off all your debt and backs the truck up and all your possessions come back in and get loaded in. How would you feel in that moment? I, I've got a new, new chance here. I, I, I'm reborn in some ways. And even that illustration just pales in comparison to what Christ did for us. It's like, and it's, don't miss this. And, and particularly, you know, you know, teens who are, who are with us here today, you know, just please, please, you know, these are truths, these are theological concepts that, that are being taught to you from your youth, like Timothy was, was instructed uh, from a child that he was instructed by his grandmother and his mother. And he, you children and teens who are here today, you have the same thing. Please don't let this become just second nature to you in the sense of that you're not amazed by this. That Christ lived a life that you could never, ever live. And then that righteousness gets put on our account through faith in him. This is an amazing concept. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he, Christ, made him, or God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jehovah said, Canoe. It's in him we can become righteous of God. We can be something that we have no right to become. We have no absolute claim towards righteousness. We have no deserving nature about being called righteous. But because of Christ, we are considered righteous in God's sight. Amazing. Romans chapter 3. For the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how do we get it? What is righteousness? It's God's eternal standard of what is right. How do we get it? How do we fulfill what his standard is? How do we live that way? How do we operate as if we have? It's only through Christ's righteousness. It's only through what he did. It's only through his perfect life of obedience and his faith in him. And if you are not depending 100% on Christ's righteousness for your salvation, today is the day. Okay? I mean, you have no other hope. There is no other course. If you had a terminal disease, okay, if you had a terminal disease and you go see the doctor and the doctor says, you're going to die. We're talking hours, okay? There is no hope except now there's this new medication that has just come out and it will save you, okay? It will save you. This is your only hope. Are you going to take that medication? Of course you are. You're going to say, give it to me. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it does. I'm going to trust in this because this is my only hope. And on a much more grand scale, Christ is your only hope. Okay? Not your works, not, not, not how, how good you are, not the decisions that you make, not all those things. Those are all important for sure, but that's not going to save you. Christ has to be your righteousness. And only righteousness will, will fulfill that standard because that's what it is. It's a standard that God has set up. So the more good news is that the righteous branch becomes our righteousness. Now, up until this point, I would say for most people here who are listening to me, I haven't said anything new. Okay? 
I think most of you have, have your, you, you've assented to this. You said, man, this is a good reminder. And there's value. We could close right now. It would be a good exercise to rehearse the gospel and rehearse what Christ has done for us. It would be a great exercise. But I want to go a little bit farther this morning, okay? I, I want to explore a little bit. I want you to think through, okay, what does this mean then? Why is this so important, Okay? Why is this so important? So that's what we're going we're gonna to wrap up uh, our, our, our discussion. And I think here, Jeremiah 33 is helpful in this. Let's go, let me draw your attention back to this, okay? So we've seen the Lord is our righteousness, Jehovah's canoe. We've seen that this righteous branch is going to spring up. But what is he going to do? Verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. I think that the, 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 the practical nature of this is, is, first of all, we have this idea of salvation and then of security. So we're going to talk about those in turn. First of all, uh, well, first, the, you know, we, I just wanted to point to remind you that Christ's righteousness sets the standard for our lives. So why does it matter? Is it sets the standard for how we should live. Okay? That's why it matters. But what I wanted to move on is that Christ's righteousness then supplies salvation. This is at verse 16 that we talked about here. In those days, Judah will be saved here. We see this also in Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 19 through 21. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ's righteousness supplies our salvation. So you say, okay, why does this matter? It's as I've already said, is that you have no hope without it. Okay? And so this is salvation only through Christ's righteousness. We've already talked about this. Now here's the other part in verse 16 of chapter 33 of Jeremiah. It says, in those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell securely. Here's what Christ's righteousness does, is it provides security. When we see ourselves as enrobed in Christ's righteousness, when we embrace that fact and when we hope in that and we are moved by that, it ought to and it should change our lives. Absolutely change our lives. We have a secure life because of Christ's righteousness. There's nothing more secure than trusting in a perfect God who cannot lie and will keep his promises. There's nothing more secure than that. You know, we have investments that we can make and they're FDIC insured and stuff like that, and there's some security in that. But we all know, well, you know, things can still happen. We could still lose it, even though there's insurance, and we'd fight it if it did. But in the end, there is a possibility of losing these things. Not so with what Christ has done in salvation. Because he is absolutely righteous. And his righteousness, then applied to us, ought to produce one of the most secure lives and lifestyles that has ever been known to man. What would happen to your anxiety if you primarily saw yourself as clothed in Jesus' righteousness? What would happen to that? What about body image issues? Struggling with what you see in the mirror? When I was a kid, um, I had this tremendous overbite. Buck teeth. 
And it was so bad, I could take both my thumbs like this and put it like between my lower jaw and my upper, my teeth. Huge overbite, big buck teeth, big ears. You know, kids called me Dumbo, you know. Um, w the only advantage of gaining weight is my head has kind of matched my ear size now. Um, so it's not as big of a deal anymore. Some of you are like, no, it's still a big deal. Um, but uh, I remember being told, you know, you know, listen, and I was, you know, you, you have kids in the neighborhood making fun of you and things like this and, you know, all this stuff because of the way you looked and stuff. And I remember I had to have lots of orthodontic work to so move my jaw forward and all sorts of stuff. And, and I had braces. And you say, well, don't you have crooked teeth? Well, yeah, there's a lesson in that. You have to wear a retainer. I didn't. Okay. So, but the point is, is that there was, there was some things there that I just didn't like. And I was self-conscious about. And I was told, listen, God made you the way he made you. And it was just good. And was that helpful? Yes, that was helpful. Was it true? Yes, it was true. Did I still struggle? Absolutely. You know what's more helpful? Is I'm righteous in God's sight. <laughs> Who cares what I look like? I'm righteous in God's sight. <laughs> Who cares that I don't like what I see in the mirror? Because when God looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness covering me. What would happen to your anxiety? What would happen to your body image issues if you just saw yourself as enrobed in Christ's righteousness? Well, would your life be freer if you better understood Christ's righteousness being applied to you? I don't have time to turn there. Romans chapter 6 is just a tremendous text, and this is one of the, the real challenges of this sermon is like how many different passages I could just unpack. But Romans chapter 6, we see that we are no longer in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. But we are free to be slaves to what? Righteousness. Because of what Christ has done. We can have a life of righteousness because even when we sin, even when we sin, it's been forgiven, it's been taken care of. And it is so important that, you know, sometimes, you know, then Paul, he says there, so should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, that's not the point. But the point is, is that we are free in Christ. Because of his righteousness. We can live in a, in a much more free way. Not always second guessing. Not always wondering. Not always uh, in this anxious world of like, is God going to be happy? Is God going to be upset? Is God going to strike me down? Should we seek to please God? Absolutely. But not in a sense of, of oh, God's just going to reject me. Because no, he sees Christ's righteousness covering you if you're a believer in Christ. Would your life be more free if you saw it that way? I believe so. Do you think you would deal with failure better if you embrace Christ's righteousness covering you? We all fail. But if you, if you just understood the theological reality that Christ's righteousness is on us, how would I deal with failure? Failure should bother us, but if we're in Christ, it should never crush us. It should never crush us. Failures do not define us when Christ is our righteousness. And the fear of failure will not paralyze us if we understand how God sees believers as enrobed in Christ's righteousness. Then I can go do things that I don't feel comfortable doing in terms of service to God. I, I, can, I can take that step. I can get out my comfort zone because even if I fail at it, Christ's righteousness is covering me. I don't like failure. I hate failure. I hate not succeeding at something. I feel like it's a weakness. 
recently, my family decided that there was a good deal at Walmart and clearance of a swimming pool. We were going to put this thing up. Well, then I realized you got to level the ground. I looked at my backyard, and I was like, there's not a whole lot of level section in there. So here's what I'm going to do. We had a bunch of dirt. I'm like, we're going to level this thing out. We spent day, day and a half leveling this thing out and everything. I'm looking at it. I had a board. Did I know what I was doing? No. But I acted like I did, okay? And so I watched a YouTube video. I was good to go. And so, you know, I had the board out there. I did the circle, you know, all the stuff we're doing. The neighbors, you know, loaned, lent us tools and we're stamping it out. And I was like, I think that's good enough. All right. Here we go. So we put the pool up there, put a little bit of water in it. Four inches of water on one side, bone dry on the other side. There's no pool in our backyard right now. Facebook Marketplace, we sold it, <laughs> okay? All right. Now, there's a little bit of pride with this. Like, man, I, we failed at this. Man, we, we, we tried to do something, and it just didn't work, you know? And there's times in my life where failures like that would have just absolutely crushed me. But you know what? I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. doesn't matter if I don't know how to put a pool up. <laughs> I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. Don't you, think, don't you see how this, this changes how we live our lives every day? How would your service for God change if the idea of Christ giving you his righteousness consumed your thoughts? Some people, they serve out of sense of duty, which isn't necessarily bad because we are commanded to serve. But if we primarily serve out of duty, we will tend to look for excuses not to do it, okay? Because it's, a, it's a duty and we, we push against it. Now, there's honor and duty, but it just never lasts, okay? If the only reason why you're doing something is a sense of obligation, eventually, eventually, because you are that good, you will find a reason not to do it, okay? And I am that good. We will find a reason not to do it if the only thing is, is duty. Now, duty's not bad. Other people, they serve, on the other hand, primarily delight, which is much better because then instead of looking for excuses not to do something, when we're doing something out of delight, we're looking for excuses to do those things. You know, when you get a new toy or, you know, motorcycle or car or shotgun or bow or whatever, you, you're looking for excuses to use those things, right? Because you find delight in it. Here's the thing, though, about delight. That doesn't last either. That doesn't last either. We won't always have the feeling to delight. Why am I telling you this? Because when we see ourselves as clothed in Christ's righteousness, it is both duty and delight. It's both. It is perfectly balanced. We have the honor of duty and we have the joy of delight. And so in those moments where it doesn't feel like that we should keep doing this or we don't actually feel like it, the duty kicks in because of what Christ's standard is, his righteous standard, what he's done for us. But then as we do that, we sense the delight that comes because Christ's righteousness has covered us. And so when we see ourselves in Christ's righteousness, we can overcome all insecurities and live in ways that we never thought were possible. So only, only Christ's righteousness produces the security and freedom that we long for, but tend to search for in all the wrong places. You see, back in Jeremiah, he said, in those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. I say, and today, if we are, see ourselves as clothed in Christ's righteousness, we have our salvation, and we can live the most secure life. We have no insecurities because what else do we need other than Christ's righteousness covering us? Nothing. 
nothing at all. We're free. We're absolutely free. That's what Christ's righteousness does. Now, of course, this freedom is not intended to facilitate sin. Christ's righteousness produces a humble confidence or a holy boldness, not irresponsible living. And so my challenge to us today is that we must see ourselves as clothed in Christ's righteousness. But that has to be true. We can't just wish it to be true. We have to believe in Christ. We have to repent of our sins and ask God to forgive us our sins and ask God to clothe us in Christ's righteousness and believe him that he does. So if you're not clinging to Christ's righteousness for your hope of salvation, let me just tell you today's today. Okay? Today is today. We receive Christ through faith, trusting in the grace of God. If you're not living according to God's standard of righteousness, then repent. Okay? But then embrace what Christ did for us. But if you've never considered the freedom that you're missing because you have not understood Jesus to be Jehovah's Canoe, make that a matter of daily prayer, okay? Meditate on what it means to have Christ as our righteousness.